0: As a reminder, this is uh, towards the end of the story of Abigail, and we'll uh, read this passage, and I'll be concentrating on her marriage, both to Nabal and then to David here at the end. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me, and blessed is your advice, and blessed are you, because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed. And from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light, no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I've heeded your voice and respected your person. Now Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king, and Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. So it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became like a stone. Then it happened after about ten days that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal, and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her, saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. Then she arose, bowed her face to the earth, and said, Here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So Abigail rose in haste and rode on a donkey, attended by five of her maidens, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, And so both of them were his wives. But Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galim. This passage is something of a happy ending to a distressing passage where we see a rich fool one who offends David and offends God. We see the anger of David that is vehemently expressed. Then we see the wisdom of Abigail that shines out in this passage. She comes and and ministers in David's life in such a way that preserves him from avenging himself. It was really a dramatic passage to see the, the... wisdom and discretion of Abigail and the grace of God that was demonstrated in her life. There's something of a happy ending here, isn't there? God releases her from her marriage to the fool, and David wastes no time (laughs) and sends his servants and proposes marriage to Abigail. That being said, there are certain details of this passage that make us A little uncomfortable. The fallen nature of mankind has borne its bitter fruit even on marriage. And that comes through here. And I want to briefly mention and answer some of the problems that come up in this passage. But then I want to concentrate on the good expressions, the good propositions about what marriage ought to be that come through in this passage, and show you how they lead us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So let me start off by answering a couple of problems. You might remember that David already had a wife, and that comes out in verse 44. King Saul had given his daughter, Michael, to David to be his wife. It was a reward for the one who would defeat Goliath, and that was David. So David had taken Michael as his wife. That was okay. That was it was, uh, uh, it, was uh, uh, it was a practice that would have been known in the culture of the Old Testament, where uh, where marriages might be more directed than they are in in these days, uh, and they might be even politically motivated, especially for leaders. There was something of an alliance that was created by a marriage. So at that time. Saul wanted a strong bond between his house and a successful warrior, and that was David. So the marriage made David Saul's son-in-law and bound him to the king. This helps you understand what Saul did next in verse 44. He gave Michael to somebody else. This publicly dishonored David, and it demonstrated the breaking of the alliance between Saul and uh, and David. Saul was demonstrated that he now considered David no longer the king's man, no longer his son-in-law, but an enemy. So much for Saul's repentance, just in the previous chapter, chapter 24, where he had praised David and honored him, now is going back to his old ways and we will find that he returns to hating and hunting David in the next chapter. And so much for Saul's attention to the law of God as he broke the bond of marriage between Michael and David. For David's part, we're uncomfortable as well. It may be that he already knew this and considered himself a free man, so to speak, but but we aren't sure. What we do know, though, is that David knowingly not only married Abigail, but also married Ahanom of Jezreel, so he took two wives, and he will go on to take other wives later in his life. And we need to stop here and say that polygamy is not in keeping with God's design. From the very beginning, God had instituted marriage to exist between one man and one woman, and that they would be bound together in marriage for uh, for their lives, a bond not to be broken. Unfortunately, as I've said, sin has brought a lot of sorrow into the practice of marriage. And that's true not only in David's life, but there is much sorrow and much misunderstanding, even amongst Christians, about the practice of marriage today. And sin brings sorrow into marriage in ways that are, have, have many numbers, many ways in which that happens. The rise of divorce, the, the breaking away from the idea of marriage between a man and a woman in our culture uh, and even within the Christian culture, uh, uh, an arranging and a, a of marriage uh, often comes across in a heavy-handed and authoritarian way. That being said, there is still beauty that comes from ashes in this passage. And it's to that that I want to turn. It's worthy of our notice and our consideration to... To step back and say, what is it that God instituted? What is it that is blessed by the Lord in marriage? And how can we see it in Abigail's marriage? And the first is a negative. On your outline for the passage, I will phrase this principle for marriage as in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians. Do not be unequally yoked. Do not be unequally yoked. So this morning, uh, little Emily came up to me and said that she has an ox. And I said, well, I'm going to talk about oxen and the message today. So here it is. Are you ready, Emily? Okay, so in Bible times, when they wanted to plow, they would take one ox and another ox and put them side by side and connect them with what was called a yoke. And those two oxen would be a team, and they would pull together. But if there was one ox that was strong and one ox that was lame, you would not pull straight. You would be unequally yoked, and it would not work very well. Or imagine if a farmer came and he put one ox in the yoke facing this direction, and one ox in the yoke facing that direction. That's not only unequally yoked, that's disastrous, (laughs) and it's not going to work at all. Nabal and Abigail were unequally yoked, and they provide us an opportunity to affirm a principle of marriage that, that comes through. Do not be unequally yoked. In this case, a Christian should not marry a non-Christian. These words come from the New Testament in Paul. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And he goes on and gives reason for that. Now, Paul's letter had application that goes beyond marriage has in mind relationships that, that we have in a variety of ways uh, throughout our worldly dealings, but it does have application to our marriage, and I want to specifically apply it in that way today. So let's look at Nabal and Abigail. What have we learned about Nabal? He was a fool, that's right. He was a rich fool. He loved money. He loved himself. He loved his own way. He loved getting what he wanted. And he got what he wanted over and over again. He was a rich man, but that richness was not a compliment. Because he didn't use his riches in a godly way. We have seen him hoarding his money, being tight-fisted in all of his ways. And he was a scoundrel. That's the word the Bible uses. And remember, a scoundrel is a worthless, perverse man, literally a son of Belial, the devil. Nevertheless, he was married to Abigail, one who demonstrates that she believes in God and ordered her life in that way. She managed her household in a way that showed respect to her husband, even though he was a scoundrel and a fool. She managed those that were under her with grace and compassion. The way she appealed to David showed her humility, that she understood what sin was and what it meant to repent of those and to come and to ask for forgiveness. The way she addressed David showed that she also knew God's word. She knew God's covenant promises and was aligning herself in the the place of God's blessing. And the way she confronted David showed her knowledge of, of that word of God and her own convictions to live a life that was holy. How in the world did this Fool, marry this godly woman. We don't know. <laughs> a couple of things come to mind, though. It is possible that the marriage was arranged. That was it was part of a practice of that day. Uh, so it could be that a- a- Abigail didn't have a choice, or it's possible that Nabal. Changed over time. I have known many people who thought their spouse was a Christian and they married believing that this was a godly man or a godly woman only to find out something different over time. Their spouse revealed a drifting or a departing from the faith. Well, the text doesn't say how it happened. It just says that they were married. And by the way, this, I would say, is another reason to commend Abigail in in persevering in a difficult marriage. So we don't know how they became married, but it's easy to understand the grief that comes to such a marriage. I've said it, Already I'll say it again that sin sin in marriage brings sorrow and multiplies sorrow. And the joining together of a believer and an unbeliever will often bring bring multitude of sorrows. They were unequally yoked. I described it in the terms of oxen that uh, I'll... uh, remind you that in this pairing of Mabel and Abigail, we have a pairing of one who believes with one who is a non-believer. And I want to encourage you to not be deceived about this. Now, remember that this is not talking about uh, uh, finding yourself in a marriage that where there is a believer and an unbeliever. Uh, That could happen if someone is converted after a marriage happens. And in the New Testament, Paul says, maintain that marriage if the unbeliever will stay. No, this is talking about the beginning of a marriage, the the, the, the marrying uh, knowingly between a believer and an unbeliever. And this is where I say, don't be deceived. And I say that because you may think that this doesn't matter. Or you may think that, uh, that y- you love each other, and so that love will make all of the differences that appear between you to be trivial. Or you may think that you will convert him or her over time, the love that you have for them. And so you come to overlook their unbelief. You may say to yourself, he makes me happy. What's wrong with that? She makes me laugh. What could go wrong? Well, listen to Paul's words. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? Righteousness and lawlessness are moral absolutes. On the one hand, you have someone who loves Jesus, seeks to be obedient to God's law, and on the other hand, you have lawlessness, a person who cares nothing about who Jesus is or his law. Morally, these two things just don't mix. They're oriented in opposite directions. Remember, this is not about two Christians that may be going through a rough patch or that may be uh, finding that, that their, their interests are, are not as aligned as maybe they thought. They, they do have Christ, and a promise to grow together under his headship. That's not what this is talking about. It's talking about a believer marrying an unbeliever. Paul goes on, what communion has light with darkness? Well, that's easily understood. Light and dark don't mix together. And what accord, says Paul, does Christ have with Belial? and i find it uh fascinating that paul would use that term here because of the scoundrel that Nabal was the son of belial and paul picks up that term that name for jesus here to describe uh, and to ask that question what Accord, what harmony, what fellowship does Christ have with Satan? First Samuel calls Nabal a scoundrel, a son of Belial, twice. And so the question of Paul is, what accord in marriage does Christ have with his enemy? And what part has a believer with an unbeliever? When you add the word the letters u n to the beginning of a word that makes it its opposite. For instance, if I uh, I can tie my shoes and I can untie them. In this case we have a believer and an unbeliever. A believer is one who trusts the word of God and and follows after Jesus Christ. An unbeliever is one who rejects God's promises and the person of Jesus. Nabal and Abigail illustrate the hardship and the sorrow that often come to an unequally yoked marriage. We don't know how that marriage was established, but we can speak to establishing marriages for you. We could speak to those who are unmarried and to urge you from the, uh, from the command of Paul and from this very sad example of Nabal and Abigail do not be unequally yoked. Seek out one who is a believer in Jesus Christ. Let that be the first and foremost aspect. Of what you seek for in a companion for the rest of your life. Well, if uh, to not uh, if the command to not be unequally yoked is is on one side, let's think of Abigail's marriage to David as an example of being equally yoked. We go back to that illustration of. Oxen that are joined together, and I want to tell you about seeing horses that are, have been yoked together. when I've preached on this passage i've told about how I've loved to go out to the to, to the Payne County Fair at our, our fairgrounds and go to the horse pole there they bring together these really beautiful, strong horses that just love to pull weight. And in a horse pole, they have a sled that is is set up. And they add uh, more and more weight to the sled. And the driver is behind them. And they unleash them to see how much weight they can pull. And if I understand, they'll start with their own weight. And then they'll add weight upon weight upon weight. If I understand correctly, one of the ones that we saw, the champion pulled something like two tons greater than the weight of those two horses. Two tons, that's 4,000 pounds more than the weight of those horses. What was fascinating is to see those two horses working together. And in talking with people who know about this, they, they describe how the horses are, are trained to, to labor together in that way and how there's a delicate balance that happens. That doesn't mean that they are exactly the same in their weight or their size, but, but they do pull together, and there's a rhythm to that so that as there is the, uh, the push that happens, that there's a, a mutual pushing, It keeps that sled moving. Well, if Nabal and Abigail illustrate a pairing of unbelievers, uh, David and Abigail illustrate the positive side of things. And the conclusion of this chapter describes the, uh, the recognition that David had of a godly woman. Uh, the text does say that she was a beautiful woman, but it develops her godliness, and it's that godliness that is is told over and over again. And at the conclusion of uh, of this kind of encapsulated story, we have. a a main idea that's being told. And that main idea has been vengeance belongs to God. He will repay. And in this case, we see uh, the beginning, the middle, and the end because God does bring vengeance on Nabal for his sins. He strikes Nabal and he dies. And by David's word, we see that God is vindicating his servant David. He is vindicating the one who was anointed to be king by bringing judgment on the one who had slandered him and who had shown, who had despised the Lord's anointed. God honored David in this way. And he honored Abigail too, for she too had acted in faith. She had waited on the Lord in a difficult marriage. Amazingly, she had not wilted away. She hadn't given up trying. She hadn't given up on the Lord. Indeed, the Lord had sustained her and then blessed her. As the text says, when when David learned of Nabal's death, he he sent messengers to propose marriage to Abigail. Again, we can ask, well, what prompted this? Was the development of character that david was was a recipient of God had used Abigail to restrain him from great sin he had sinned already in his vehement anger and it was going from bad to worse, but the Lord sent Abigail to restrain him and Abigail demonstrates over and over again that she was first and foremost a follower of God. In our language today, we would call her and David Christians. They shared this oh-so-important foundation. They loved the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. And you can see that, as we've noted before, in Abigail's wisdom, in her discretion, in her generosity, in her love of God's word, her humility, her pursuing peace, her repentance, her reconciliation. Commentator Phillips puts it this way, for all her outward beauty it is mainly the beauty of her holiness that shines forth. Charm and deceitful a charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, concludes Proverbs thirty-one. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. The text does go on to tell how Abigail accepted David's proposal. She went to become his wife. The Lord who had struck down Nabal had now raised up Abigail to a different position, a position of being loved and cared for by a man of God, and one that she could return love to, one that she could pull together with, equally yoked. And she brings all of those gifts to her marriage, gifts that come through in her words. Here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. In going to David, previously I pointed out how Abigail was, was positioning herself, aligning herself, with, with the Lord's anointed, and in the same way, in marrying David, she does the same. She is bringing herself into the place of God's blessing. And without making the passage uh, only an allegory, it's good to hear the gospel in this. Again, as Philip says, Abigail left behind her former life, a life made sordid by association with corruption and sin, to begin a new life with God's anointed servant. I want you to consider that. I want you to consider how in Abigail's faith, there is a, a giving of herself to the Lord's anointed in her marriage. Consider this for yourself, that... You, too, were dead in your trespasses and sin. You have been, spiritually speaking, married to much worse than the son of Belial. Spiritually speaking, you've been married to Belial himself. You have been outside of the kingdom of God. You have been his enemy. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, has rescued you from the clutches of Satan. He has raised you up in Christ and made you his church, his glorious bride, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Go to him to the son of David, to the prince of peace, and rejoice in the love that he has for you and the union that you have with him. Let's pray. Well, Lord, our God, we do rejoice in the love that you have shown to us in our savior, Jesus Christ. And we rejoice in the ways in which that blessing uh, that you have for us is poured out through the institution of marriage. And Lord our God, we pray that that you would be bringing together believers in in our congregation for for the blessing of marriage. We pray that you would uh, grant wisdom to those who are praying and asking that you would provide a husband or a wife. We pray that you would guard against temptation to Look for shortcuts for companionship, shortcuts that would turn aside from uh, from this warning of not being unequally yoked. And said, O God, we pray uh, that you would uh, provide richly from your bounty for those that are longing for marriage, that you would provide a, a joining together of husbands and wives that would indeed pull together and would reflect both of their gifts in ways that are suitable, in ways that give glory to you. Most of all, Lord, we thank you for our Saviour Jesus Christ, the groom of the uh, or the bridegroom to us, the church, and may we rejoice in the love of the Son of David that he has for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Psalm forty-five is often thought of as a wedding psalm, a wedding psalm for David. And in it, it rejoices in the bride that's the, that is brought to him as a king. But we can, uh, uh, we can understand this in terms of that gospel of Jesus Christ as well, that we, the church, are the bride that is brought, clothed in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ, and given an inheritance and a, uh, a and a posterity that is a blessing that comes from the Lord. And so let's sing this marriage psalm, Psalm forty five, selection C. Please stand to sing.